This is Andrew Smith. You're listening to Today in Church History, a place where we're reminded that history is truly his story. History is the story of God and the demonstration of his glory in the theater of world events. I hope you enjoy listening to these episodes of Today in Church History. Their purpose is to ignite a passion for God's truth one historical event at a time. Today is Friday, April 19th, 2019. But on this day in history, April 19th, 1560, the great reformer Philip Melanchthon died. Now, the Protestant Reformation was an historical miracle of sorts, the movement of a sovereign God to steer the course of the church from darkness back toward the light of the gospel. The beauty of God's sovereignty is exemplified in his masterful use of the various personalities and gifts of the men involved in the Reformation. One of these very interesting men is Philip Melanchthon. Melanchthon was a German. His father was the personal armorer, supplying weapons and armor to the elector of the territory that they were from. His father was also apparently devoutly religious because on his deathbed, gathering his family around him, including Melanchthon and his siblings, his father told them to never leave the church as his last dying words. This came from a man supplying armor to an important elector of the government. This reminds us that government and the church seemed inseparable to the people of the 16th century. Melanchthon's very heritage helps us better understand his political and ecclesiastical efforts to unite a divided church. He cherished the traditions of the church, while at the same time saw the corruption and abuses that had developed throughout the centuries within the church. Melanchthon, also being a very pragmatic man, understood that the longevity of the Reformation depended in some measure upon both coercion of and cooperation with civil authorities. Luther himself was very keen of this, his very life being protected by Frederick the Wise, elector of Saxony. In some measure, Luther was bound by political power, beholden, as it were, to the high political machinery of Germany to accomplish key Reformation victories. This was the reality for Philip Melanchthon as well. Now, Luther's influence upon Melanchthon cannot be overstated. Melanchthon arrived at the University of Wittenberg in the year 1518 to serve as a Greek professor. He was a respected humanist scholar before embracing the gospel of grace and becoming a brilliant theologian and leading reformer alongside of Martin Luther, who considered Melanchthon one of his closest friends. In fact, in the absence of Luther and in the stead of Luther, it was Philip Melanchthon who was called upon and viewed as one of the most articulate spokesmen of the Protestants at both imperial deets set by the political world and ecclesiastical councils, often called religious colloquies in the church world. History takes note of the ease by which Melanchthon moved about in the political and ecclesiastical worlds, beginning with the Deet of Spire in 1529. This Deet insisted upon a stricter adherence to the Edict of Worms, signed in 1521 by Charles V, which made Luther an outlaw of the empire. It was the determination of the Deed of Spire to actually enforce the laws prohibiting Protestant beliefs and practices, which in turn inspired the Reformers, with Luther working in the background, to redouble their efforts at uniting on some reasonable level with one another in order to possess a more strengthened front against the Roman Church. One of these attempts took place at the Marburg Colloquy in the year 1529, where a collection of Reformers from Switzerland and Germany had a religious discussion to resolve their differences and to create an ecclesiastical and theological agreement as the basis for a political alliance. In other words, this colloquy had both political and theological motivations. Both were necessary, it's important to remember, in the world of the Reformers, since Rome was intent to make war on Protestantism. Apart from political maneuvering and alliances among civil authorities, the Reformation simply would have hit a stalemate. This is why Luther and Zwingli agreed to participate in this important colloquy under the sponsorship of Philip of Hesse. 
Philip of Hesse was a German landgrave who saw his chance to unite reformers of South Germany together with Swiss reformers in order to have a strong front against Roman Catholics. He longed for all German princes to be free from the Holy Roman Empire, forming a new alliance under the banner of Protestantism. The Marburg Colloquy, of course, ended up focusing on the theological differences between the Lutheran and Reformed views of the Lord's Supper concerning the real presence of Christ in the sacrament. If unanimity could be attained, then Germany would have the backing of the Swiss. Particularly, this would mean more than just church unity, but also the addition of the Swiss forces. Philip of Hesse saw this as an obvious militaristic advantage in light of the looming threat of Charles V of the Holy Roman Empire. But it was at Marburg that Luther and Melanchthon opposed Zwingli, insisting that the Lord's Supper was more than a memorial. Now, Melanchthon obviously sided with Luther during the debate, though Luther himself admitted that Melanchthon did not hold to his own position as strongly and was more willing to compromise for the sake of unity. I think the same thing could be said about Zwingli. Zwingli did not view this as important of a disagreement as Luther did. Later evidence even suggests that Melanchthon changed his position to more of a reformed understanding of the Lord's Supper. Even still, no agreement was reached between the opposing factions at this colloquy. This brings us to the origins of the Augsburg Confession, written in 1530. Now, this is still the standard confessional statement for Lutherans even into today. And it was Philip Melanchthon who was credited as being the author and primary editor of this important Protestant document. Melanchthon, of course used Luther's own confession as well as the Swabach articles and Torga articles as the basis of what he wrote in this confession. But ironically, it was Charles V who called for an imperial deed at Augsburg, which gave rise to the Augsburg Confession. Initially, Charles V had not strictly enforced the Edict of Worms, which involved a personal ban on Luther's books in person. Now, the reason for this was his preoccupation with wars against France, the Papal States, and the Turks. But once he signed treaties with France and the Pope, Charles V then defeated the Turks at Vienna in 1529. He was then able to turn his attention to the internal affairs of the empire. And Charles V was sick of war. He desired peace. And he viewed the Turks as the greatest threat to European harmony. Though he halted the advance of the Turks during the Siege of Vienna in 1529, Charles V believed that if political unity in Europe could materialize through religious negotiations, then the Turks could be soundly defeated. This is what led him to seek a truce between the Roman Church and the Reformers by calling for an imperial deed to take place at Augsburg, where negotiations for peace and explanations of beliefs could take place. Now, since Luther was not allowed to go, he sent Philip Melanchthon in his place. The heart of what became the Augsburg Confession began as a defense against the long list of heresies that John Eck alleged against the Reformers. On his way to Augsburg, Melanchthon systematized both Lutheran doctrine in particular and Protestant doctrine in general into a condensed document attempting to show Eck and the Roman Church that the Reformers were simply following the ancient church fathers and their beliefs. So the document itself was not only an attempt to unite Protestants, but it also actually left the door open for unity with the Roman Church, provided the Roman Church recognized that the Reformers' position was that of the Church Fathers, or at least that their views were latent within the Fathers' writings. This is where Luther differed from Melanchthon. Though Luther approved the draft of the Augsburg Confession, he felt it conceded too much to the Roman Church. Indeed, many important matters were glossed over and not addressed. This is because both princes and theologians contributed to the Augsburg Confession, which diluted its content because of political aspirations. This was purposeful, not so much as intentional compromise, as much as what was viewed as necessary action to bring about enough unity to help the broader Protestant cause. The authors of the Augsburg Confession were aware of the doctrinal differences, but downplayed them to obtain toleration in their teaching and to leave open the possibility of coming to an agreement among one another. 
The Augsburg Confession was read before the German rulers at Augsburg, but ultimately they sided with the Roman Catholics, who drafted their own document, and Charles V even signed that document. The Apology was also written by Melanchthon and served as a deeper explanation of the doctrines affirmed in the Augsburg Confession. The Augsburg Confession is still considered, as I said, one of the most important Protestant documents to date. Now, Philip Melanchthon upheld justification by faith alone, and in this sense, he carried forth the gospel legacy of Luther. However, he was a very different man than Luther in both temperament and perspective. He pursued peace that he never achieved, while Luther was more concerned about declaring truth and allowing the pieces to fall where they must. Both men were products of their times. For his part, Luther was a man of the Middle Ages, understanding that religious progress was necessarily tied to political processes. Even still, he was less eager than Melanchthon to pursue political alliances when he believed too much truth was at stake. Even still, Melanchthon's influence in the Protestant Reformation overall was very positive, and it can be understood by looking at Melanchthon as a reformer as well as a theologian. First, as a reformer, Melanchthon was just very much different than Luther. Melanchthon was passive, not aggressive. If Luther was pioneering and provocative, Melanchthon was cautious and conciliatory. If Luther was bold and bombastic, then Melanchthon was peaceful and pliable. Luther was the teacher, Melanchthon was his pupil. Now, this does not mean that Melanchthon was not courageous, but he was naturally averse to strife. He truly believed that the church was one, and that the differences could be settled between various Protestants themselves, as well as between Protestants and the Roman church to some degree. Luther gently chided Melanchthon for this perspective in a letter he wrote him in June 1530. This is what Luther wrote. To your great anxiety by which you were made weak, I am a cordial foe, for the cause is not ours. It is your philosophy and not your theology which tortures you so, as though you could accomplish anything by your useless anxieties. So far as the public cause is concerned, I am well content, says Luther, and I am satisfied, for I know that it is right and true, and what is more, it is the cause of Christ and God himself. For that reason, I am merely a spectator. If we fall, Christ will likewise fall. If we fall, I would rather fall with Christ than stand with the emperor." End quote. Now here we should just observe that it takes a Luther and a Melanchthon for a Reformation to occur. We all admire Luther's fiery spirit to fight for truth. Such was necessary for the Reformation to succeed. On the other hand, Melanchthon was able to have discourse with those on the opposing side. It was likely Melanchthon's presence at the Marburg Colloquy that helped calm Luther enough to have a lengthy discussion regarding the Lord's Supper. Luther was adamant about his position, and perhaps apart from Melanchthon's presence, might have walked out early on in the proceedings. Other men were present at Marburg who also saw the importance of attempted theological mediation. One such man was Martin Bootser, John Calvin's close associate. Such dialogue is good for Christians to engage in. As Western civilization grows increasingly secular, we need both Luther's and Melanchthon's in the church, those who hit back hard theologically, as well as those who are able to have theological discourse on both sides of the aisle, so to speak. Now, Melanchthon clearly walked that line too closely, especially with the Roman church. Even still, his willingness to work alongside other Protestants showcases his desire for unity among the church, even though it was not ultimately achieved. Melanchthon's spirit is a helpful reminder regarding valiant attempts to stay united on primary issues within the body of Christ. Melanchthon's legacy as a theologian centers upon his ardent defense of justification by faith alone. He's considered the first systematic theologian of the Protestant Reformation. His great skill is rooted in a lack of creativity when it comes to theology. That may sound like a criticism, but nothing serves as a greater compliment than to applaud a man for his efforts at caring more about the church understanding truth than being viewed as possessing academic prowess. Melanchthon genuinely cared that the people in the pew understood the biblical doctrines of the Reformation. He was a master at systematizing and explaining truth, condensing what Luther and other prominent reformers taught. 
Now, this is not to say that he could not think for himself. In fact, after Luther's death, Melanchthon was involved in theological controversies, revealing a more creative spirit. Sadly, he seemed to shift from a solid theological grounding a bit. Nevertheless, Melanchthon's gift was articulating truth in a manner people could understand for his day. This is a good reminder to us that the academy does not exist for the sake of the academy, but for the sake of the church. Clearly, Melanchthon believed this, or the theology of the Reformation would not have spread to laymen as it so successfully did. Melanchthon had particularly controversial episodes arise in the last decade of his life. Even to this day, he is viewed with suspicion, not fully embraced by either the Lutherans in some quarters or the Reformed, apart from important qualifications. But it is also important to recognize that Luther himself only viewed him as a close friend and a faithful reformer until the day that he died. The lesson to take from the life and legacy of Philip Melanchthon is that God is sovereign even over our personalities. The psalmist declares that he was knitted by God in his mother's womb, and he was fearfully and wonderfully made. God used the temperament and the perspective of Melanchthon, which differed from Luther in many ways, to continue circulating the teachings of Luther after his passing. Melanchthon himself died after a brief sickness in 1560. He was buried next to Luther as a testimony to their unity, as well as their joint achievements for the Protestant Reformation. History is truly his story. It's the story of God and the demonstration of his glory in the theater of world events. I hope you've enjoyed listening to this episode of Today in Church History. You can access more episodes by going to Apple iTunes and searching for Today in Church History. You can also visit my website, www.hearttoflame.org, and see episodes there as well as various articles written. Don't forget to follow me on Facebook and Twitter for updates on new articles and new podcasts. Until next week, this is Andrew Smith.